Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. My guest today is Michael Brook, who's a friend of mine, who is an expert in global technology and brings a wide range of knowledge in regards to the different players in technology, the different forces, different uses, and other aspects. So, Michael, welcome. As I said, really excited to have you on. It'd be great if you could share with our audience just some key points about your, yourself and your background. Sure, happy to. So I began after graduated from university where I studied engineering, electronic engineering for that. I was very lucky I got a job at Intel um, and I joined them. When I joined them, I was working in chip design, after which I, after a few years of that, I wanted to move into more of the business side of it. So I joined the product marketing, spent a number of different positions in marketing and then corporate strategy and strategic alliances, got me onto the radar of the CEO at the time, the very well-known Andy Grove. And that was a way of effectively learning so much about the business. It was like an MBA for me. And then as a reward, they sent me to China in the early days. It was in mid-90s, actually. So it was very early days for the development of the technology industry in China. And of course, it all grew very quickly after that. But back in those days, it was still moving kind of slowly. So I moved back to the U.S., joined an investment bank in New York, where I worked on funding startup companies because that was a big thing, the dot-com and then I got lured back to China through and just because, uh, you know, once you're here, you kind of get it under your skin. And I uh, joined a private equity fund and I've been in this part of the world. I was in Shanghai, living in Shanghai and then I moved to Hong Kong over 12 years ago and I've been here ever since. And currently I'm working with Hong Kong and mostly Hong Kong family offices to invest in, in technology companies and support entrepreneurs and innovation uh, throughout Asia. Well, Michael, you have a multivariate background and one that's really perfect for our purposes, which is to educate and inform uh, a, a broad audience who's interested in global issues about various topics. And your expertise in technology, is, I think, is one that makes you a, uh, a really valuable uh, resource for us. So the way I thought I'd take today's conversation, to look at technology from uh, two main themes or arcs, as we said. One is the history of innovation in technology. So what's driving the innovation? What's the innovation in terms of how is it targeted? What are the key, perhaps, players or themes within innovation technology? And the second is the geography. How has technology evolved geographically, whether by regions or by countries? And what are the reasons for that? And, and how will that continue to um, proceed going forward? Um, obviously, we sit in here in Asia and have an Asian perspective, and many of our audience might sit somewhere else and they're interested globally, but also where Asia fits into the, the picture. So, um, Michael, why don't we start from the beginning and tell us, you know, technology in general, however you want to define it. What are its origins? And, and walk us through the, the briefly, if you can, the, the history of, of technology. A good place to start would be when computers started. Computers were invented. And I'm not going to go all the way back to the 18th century with Charles Babbage when they were mechanical. If you think about electronic computers when they began, it really 
started in the 50s. Um, there were some examples maybe earlier around the Second World War, but then the really creation of the computer as a, as a commercial product was very much a 50s phenomena. In those days, computers were mainframes and quite a lot of companies that even today don't exist anymore. But the ones that, of course, do, like IBM was very well known. And at the time, they were the biggest computer company. Computers in those, those days were built using a very old type of technology, using vacuum tubes. And they became digital with the vacuum tubes. But what really, really made it change was the invention of the transistor, which took place at another interesting company at the same time in the 50s, um, which was Bell Labs, which is a subsidiary of AT&T. And back in those days, the big tech, big companies, especially if they were in the technology area, had these very, very amazing labs and research groups that invented a lot of stuff that even today we get the benefit out of it. Okay, so you're really starting us in the context of uh, aftermath of World War II, maybe the beginning of Second World War. You had already pre-existing big technology companies and then maybe a second wave of companies that are being fostered in the in Silicon Valley. Right, so the existing companies that were in tech as it were back then, and tech in those days was not what we know of technology today. I mean, you know, the major elements of technology was like radio and television. The company that was really behind a lot of that was RCA. And they also had one of these labs, you know, the RCA Sarnoff labs were very, very, that's when they began. And, and a lot of what was developed. So people watch TV, they listen to the radio. So it was a lot that went on over there. And that was in the East Coast. You had GE, the big machinery and the heavy industry and stuff. They also had very advanced research labs. IBM, Thomas J. Watson, uh, research lab, and then, of course, uh, Bell Labs, which is part of AT&T, that created a lot of inventions. I mean, some, we'll get back to this maybe later, because some of the things that Bell Labs came out. So you kind of had that going on, which was funded by these large, mostly monopolistic companies. Uh, and then at the same time, was because of the Cold War, that was really the genesis of the emergence of a technology industry on the West Coast. And if you look sort of to the 50s and into the 60s, as the Vietnam War began, uh, that was where companies like Lockheed, Missiles and Aerospace, uh, began to emerge on the West Coast. That's when Stanford began to attract a lot of spending, a lot of investments from DARPA, and the, which was set up also in those times as well. So kind of, while you had the commercial things going on in the East Coast, the West Coast was really a beneficiary of a large amount of money that uh, was invested into sort of the military side of it. So Lockheed, for example, was the largest employer in East Palo Alto. They had tens of thousands of employees, and they developed things like satellites that had cameras in them that would orbit around the world, and then they would take pictures in the Soviet Union of their nuclear uh, silos, of their radar systems in particular, and then the camera would eject the film, and it would get caught by an airplane in midair as it was flying back over the U.S. airspace and then capture the film and set it for development. I mean, those are some pretty amazing things. If you think about it, you know, there was no digital transmission. I mean, you literally had to catch the film in the air that it was then developed, take to a top secret location, and people would like look, expand it and enlarge it and be able to look at that stuff. That, that was some of the stuff that was the amazing things, James Bond-like things that were developed in there. But one thing that was kind of a little bit under the radar is going back to Bell Labs, which is very relevant to where we are today. Bell Labs invented the computer transistor. And the 
predominant technology in those days of electronics was Sorry, vacuum tubes. Just to, yeah. So more or less the, the year that we're thinking of or years? Uh, we're looking, I think, at about the 60s in those days. So I think the transistor was invented around the 60s. So the original transistor wasn't even silicon. It was germanium. It was something that was developed at Bell Labs. Why? Because phone networks needed switches. You had to route calls and... In the early days, has anybody seen these old black and white movies? You had the operators, you know, putting cables and. Yeah, actually, I'm watching The Crown now, uh, yeah. a little belatedly, but they have a lot of uh, scenes of these rooms of operators, switches moving the wire from one one to another, redirecting the calls. Right. When you you, you call the op, you pick up the phone, tell the operator, I want to talk to uh, and the number, and they would literally take a cable and plug it in and plug it in. And when you did a long distance call, it, was, it went through skips of multiple operators as they were connecting with the other chain. And of course, to automate all of that, AT&T needed a better switch. And vacuum tubes were problematic because vacuum tubes were, first of all, they're really big, used a lot of power, got very, very hot. Most of the energy went into them, got dissipated as heat, and they were very unreliable. They failed because there was a filament, there, were light, there was basically like a light bulb that got heated up and they failed. They were, they were hugely unreliable and very difficult to troubleshoot. And the transistor was a true breakthrough, and it emerged out of AT&T through a group of physics and material scientists that realized that you could take a piece of a piece of crystal and switch electricity on and off and create a switch which doesn't have a mechanical aspect to it, but has the ability to switch electronically. It was way smaller, way more reliable, and that eventually was, although it was initially developed for switching telephone circuits, it then ended up because computers use switches as well. And the early computers also were based on vacuum tubes. But the invention of the transistor meant that then the companies began to replace vacuum tubes in the computers with a transistor. So is it right to say they started off with the, the cardboard? There was like the early computing it was using those paper or, or those punch cards, right? Yep. And it went from punch cards to vacuum tubes or the punch cards and vacuum tubes were used they were, they were used more or less together so the punch okay. cards were mechanical it was a way of inputting information kind of it was an input device instead of a keyboard but it turns out it was also a very good way to input information because in those days computers were large centralized in places that were you know you couldn't just like we now go online there's no concept of going online so if you were writing a program or you needed data to input the computer you have to prepare them offline somewhere else and the and then take that information and input it to the, and send it literally in, in trucks or vans or cars to a center where the computer was almost like a temple. You know, everybody went there. Uh, very different from today's data centers, which I hope we'll, we'll get to later. And the most efficient way that they came up with was these punch cards. You, I, I remember doing that when I was in high school. You have a machine, a punch card was like a big teletype. You would type into it, create the cards. You would then have a stack of cards. You would take the have somebody like a courier take them to the computer place, wherever the computer was. And then somebody would put it in a reader. It would read it. It was your program. The program would then run. An operator would say, all right, now I'm going to run Jesse's program. And it could be maybe something for a bank. You know, It was all batch. That's where the concept, you know, you'd batch it up and then run them. You'd get a little sliver of the computer time, which you'd get then billed for because they'd say, okay, you used 10 seconds and that, at whatever rate it was, and they'd charge you, you know, because you were sharing that resource. And that's what the cards were. And the computers then, so the cards remained around for quite a while, but the computer where it did all the processing shifted from vacuum tubes to transistors because transistors, as I said, they're lower power, they're lower, they're higher reliability and much quicker as well. They could switch also faster, which means, so the early computers were these 
big closet-sized boxes that had had like circuit boards in them, and the circuit boards had all the logic of a computer that architecturally were kind of very similar to what we have today, and they would be essentially the the the, the the CPU, the central processing unit, the input-output unit, all the various pieces were these you know, things that today, uh, you know, we, we have our earphones that we use have more computer power than those early ones. But they were, they, that was the world, you know, these centralized machines, mainframes. The other point, which is important to mention, is they were very proprietary. So, you know, software for an IBM computer only ran in an IBM computer. You couldn't just take it and run into Burroughs. They were very, very proprietary, and they're very. The companies were very secretive about how they did everything. So, um, uh, so the transistor era replaced vacuum tube era, and we're, I guess, in the seventies now. Yes. Um, it, what's sort of the next main innovation that that's comes through? That's really a step function in in computing or technology. So, so the me- next innovation, if you think about a, a, a transistor, a transistor is just a single switch. And it used to be put in a little small metal can with three wires coming out of it. And then that had to be connected on a large circuit board with wires and everything. It was kind of messy and, and everything. And in the 70s, somebody came up with the idea, uh, Shockley actually, came up with the idea of why can't, since the transistor is built on germanium, which is a crystal, why can't you, instead of having each transistor be in its own little can, its own little Literally, it was like a miniature can of Coke, but very, very, very small. It was like maybe a quarter of an inch and round. Why can't you just put multiple transistors and make that piece of silicon crystal bigger? And as I said earlier, the first transistor was made of germanium, um, but then they realized that a better material was silicon. And here we are at the beginning of the genesis of the silicon era, because silicon had characteristics that were better electronically, better for in terms of the physics of it, and the most interesting thing is that they then began saying, okay, what if we put a number of transistors together on one piece of silicon? And the emergence of that really is where we start going down the road of where we are today. That's the kind of like evolutionary point where, all right, the minute they realized that they could put multiple transistors on one crystal, that's what began the road to where we are today. The point about silicon is that you could build more complex circuits on smaller and smaller space. And that was how they were able to do it. And the first silicon-based integrated circuit was on the West Coast. So that's why silicon, the word Silicon Valley was was born because, you know, even though in those days, because as I said earlier, the military spending was very much on, on radar and types of things, it was, you could have called it the vacuum tube valley in the 50s and 60s. But in the 70s, that's when silicon was born. And it began at, Shockley turns out he was not a very very good manager so there were a group of people that left that started Fairchild Semiconductor but they were not very happy at Fairchild because Fairchild was one of these east coast companies that the culture was very different and they ended up leaving Fairchild and starting a company called Intel which is Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore they were the founders of Intel who were there right at the beginning working for this company Shockley Semiconductors later Fairchild and Fairchild was also a semiconductor company, but they realized they could do it better. And the first product that they were going to do is computer memories. So we're talking early 70s here, and we're talking Intel. Yeah. And we're talking, they created a new product that didn't exist on the memory side, or they were doing something that already existed, but they were doing it differently. 
So go, going going back to the early computers. So the early, a computer, you've got the logic, you've got the part of the computer that actually does all the switching and, and the computation, as it were. Think of a calculator. But you also need storage. And storage as in memory. And today, you know, we think of gigabytes in terms of the storage in our phone, for example, or our hard drives. In those days, it was much, much more modest. But what they th- realized was that the memory systems that were used in the mainframe computers were also a combination of vacuum tubes. And even when they switched to transistors, the memory part was still not transistor-based because that was expensive. So they used things like cores, like ferrite, little metal rings that were magnetized and that had these wires going through. They could turn the magnet on and off and essentially remember how it was magnetized. You could re-magnetize or erase it using wires. Those things were quite bulky and they were very, very slow. So the real breakthrough that Intel had was the founding team had already gone through Fairchild designing these things. And they, were, they, they realized that, well, we could actually make a memory chip. We could make a small piece of, you know, put, put all the switches necessary. And they invented the memory chip. And it also turns out it was a very good time to do it because one of the very first customers was Apollo Moon. You know, when, when, they were, when the whole, and that's again going back to the government. So there was a large government, NASA needed a solution for the rocket that was more reliable and lighter and so the, the, the solid-state chip memory was ideal for that. So as you're saying, the semiconductor era that may have been born in the, in the 70s, we're still in it. Yes, because uh-huh. since then, everything since then has been an evolution. So once the breakthrough of being able to put multiple transistors on one piece of crystal silicon happened, at that point, it just began to evolve. Well, that's where we get into Moore's law, right? Because Moore's law is referring to the doubling of, of processing capacity every 18 months or so. Yeah. That has been more or less observed since I can't remember exactly fifties or sixties or something like that. Right. Uh, But a lot of that is related to processing power via the semiconductor. Right. Well, Gordon Moore was one of the founders of Intel when there was a startup. And he didn't come into this realization until much later. I mean, Moore's Law was more of an observation, looking back and then thinking forward. So, as I said, Intel began doing memory chips, and they began to look at how can we add more capacity. So, in order to add more capacity, you had to have more transistors, more switches on that piece of silicon, make the silicon bigger, and on and on. So, it really was the beginning of, first, the first motivation was to be able to increase the capacity of each memory chip. And that was kind of where things evolved. And they, they started very, very small. Like they'd store just a, you know, a few hundred bits of information. And today, of course, we're storing gigabits of information. So I think, I mean, I would say two things. One is uh, presumably this increase in uh, the ability to process information, computing power, allowed companies to make smaller computers. So you may be going to the personal computer, corporate computer. That's number one. And number two, presumably that, increase the range of applications for computers to to solve or or help with with different things. And it it makes me sort of think also of that famous Bill Gates quote about how no one would ever need more than, I can't remember exactly, something like 256K. I can't remember if that was memory. No, I don't think that was Bill. It was was a famous Bill Gates quote. I'll I'll, I'll look it up maybe while while you're talking about Mm. basically saying, this will be enough. No one's ever going to need more. So, so I think it was somebody from IBM. It'd be interesting to look at it. Let's look at so, it. So, um, in any case, so take us to the, I guess, the, the next, next phase now that we have this Moore's Law, uh, you know, running. 
Well, you've actually skipped something because we were talking about memories. And so memories were the first driver of silicon chips in terms of putting more storage capacity on there. But the other key breakthrough that happened also at Intel is Intel invented the microprocessor. And the microprocessor is is the second key piece because the, the, the microprocessor took what was done in a larger mainframe computers using a large combination of different chips that were just uh, wired in such a way to create the ability to, to create a computer. Putting a computer on a chip was another breakthrough that Intel came up with in the 70s. And that was also very, very important. Now, the first computer on a chip was done really for a calculator. It was a Japanese customer of Intel that came to them and said, we want to do a calculator. Can you design a chip for us? And the guy who designed it, Ted Hoff, was his name, said, well, yeah, I could do a calculator chip, but since it's, why don't I go a step further and make it as a general purpose computer that we then program it to be a calculator? And that's what he created. That's how he invented the, the microprocessor to solve another problem, but it turned out to be much more general. And then the microprocessor began to develop on its own trajectory and its own path towards increased complexity. And it turns out it was actually a very, very fortunate decision that Intel developed the microprocessor because then if you went into the 80s, um, the Japanese started to get better at designing memories than the Americans and Intel. And they were taking market share away through a variety of strategies where you know they, they were dumping, they were selling under cost. And Intel in the, in the early 80s, when I joined them in 83, Intel had just exited the memory business, which was a huge move for them because they created and they invented and created and built their entire business around memory, solid state memory. And they had to exit it because they were losing money because of the Japanese attacking Intel, Intel's uh, memory business. So they decided to pivot the company and turn it into a CPU company. And that's because they saw that the business for their microprocessor was growing. That was prior, you know, the P, IBM PC was, was announced in 81. So they began to see that the PC market might be something interesting. They were lucky they got the PC design. In, and that's when Bill Gates got involved because Intel got the microprocessor for the IBM, original IBM PC. And Bill Gates was able to supply the IBM PC with its first operating system. Uh, just on that point, I, I was fact-checking or trying to during this conversation, and apparently uh, apparently that's fake news. He never said that. He denies saying it. Um, I went to a couple websites. That seems to be the case. So uh, apparently, probably, that was a, a misquote that somehow has lived on in legend, uh, despite I, uh, it possibly not, not being a, an accurate uh, quote. Having met Bill Gates is, he always complained that he didn't have enough memory. So that's why it didn't seem like it would be reason. He was always like, get more. He was always yelling and pushing it until it's like, we need more. This is, you know, your processors are too slow. Make them faster. Make the memory bigger. So if, if I may, maybe this one might be giving you mentioned Japan a nice time to segue back to the geographies. Cause I think up until now we've been focused on the U S maybe the two coasts, a lot happening in California, Silicon Valley. At what point does Asia become relevant in terms of the development of technology and computing? It's a very good question. So, because the first country that really started moving down this road was Japan and it was in the seventies, they began to, you know, so you got to remember Japan, Companies like Sony and National Semi, and, and not National Semi, I'm sorry, National that made radios and stuff. So electronics was a, was a core industry for Japan. And the transistor radio 
Remember, Sony invented the transistor radio because radios were something that you had in the living room. If you look at the old movies, I'm not that old, so I didn't have one of those. I don't remember if I did. Maybe my, my parents for sure did. You know, a radio was something that sat in the living rooms, but it was usually built into a piece of furniture. Yeah, now you see images of families sitting after dinner in their living room enjoying a radio show, and radio shows were a big deal. So, yeah, it was an important fixture in, in American and maybe, you know, other Western-type homes. Right. So the Sony was actually very interesting. The post-war, they realized, so the transistor, we also, up until now, we talked about transistors being a switching device for a computer. But it also turns out the transistor is also a very good amplifier in electronics, in analog electronics, which is not switching, not the non-digital. And the Sony's amazing innovation in those days was being able to build a transistor, the world's first transistor radio, which was a huge success. If you look at the movies in the 50s where you had the teenagers going around with a handheld radio and listening to music, I mean, that created a whole industry, you know, because the radio went from plays and news, one would say, you know, live things, so suddenly you could take it everywhere with you. I mean, think about today's Spotify and Apple Music. The concept of taking music with you was, and, and, and of course, also car radios, right? If you think about the 50s. And, and the tra- but the car radios, interesting enough, still use vacuum tubes, the early ones. And Sony completely changed it. And Japan realized that electronics was important. In the, so in the, in the 70s, Japan went from doing the cheap stuff, toys, plastic, to more sophisticated stuff. And did that happen um, mostly just within Japan domestically, indigenously, or was it through some sort of collaboration with, with, Amer- with American companies or, or the U.S. government? I, as far as I know, there was no collaboration with the Japanese government, with MITI, their Ministry of in- Industry Trade. I can't remember the entire, what the last I, MITI, was. Or in- a, industry. Or the trade, in, yeah. They were very much a proponent, and they created essentially a policy government policy and an industrial policy that Japan will invest much more in technology. You know, think about it, echoes of what we're seeing today. Uh, And they, one of the areas that they decided to focus on was because the transistor leads to the microprocessor, it leads to semiconductors and memory. So Japan started to invest very heavily in memory business. And they were so successful in it, and they had such a strong mercantilist view on it, that that's why they were able to succeed so well and I remember in the 80s when I was working for Andy Grove at the time, uh, there was a lot of alarm that was raised that the Japanese were destroying the U.S. electronics industry. And Intel was one of the first casualties because after that, there was no memory, U.S. memory business for many, many years to come. And it really was that focused attempt that the Japanese government, together with its industry, did to accomplish that. So METI is Minister of Economic Trade and Industry. A ministry of uh, sorry, Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, METI. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've talked a little bit offline about the U.S. Presumably going way back, maybe the fifties, was a training ground for foreign students who would study and do research in the U.S. And many would end up uh, staying and and working in the U.S. and perhaps immigrating, but some of them would come back to their home countries. So. Was that the case with the early uh, Japanese? Because uh, obviously Japan had these big, what are they called? Uh, Zaibatsu, I believe, these these big industry companies that have been around. Many of them. Karetsu's. Karetsu's, yeah. pardon me. Yeah. Many of these uh, companies like in the Karetsu have been around since perhaps the 1800s, early 1900s. So was there a linkage there? Or it, it sounds like perhaps 
that phenomenon may have been more relevant to say Taiwan or Korea. Yeah, Japan. Interesting. In yeah, Japan kind of they, they developed independently in a lot of ways. Most of you know, like the people that started Sony, it was all post Second World War. And if you look at the sort of early phones, and you know, it, it was like a world into itself. And they also had this feeling of you know, what's for Japan is designed. But but again, if you look at the electronics industry, and then later the auto industry. How they moved up so the value chain. It, it seems like perhaps the Japanese technology was targeting more on the consumer side, right? Consumer electronics and other and automobiles, things, but less, say, for industrial or military use. Uh, yes, it was not military. Not for export. It, it was yeah, it was for industry. It was for uh, you know the other industry that Japan took market share substantially away from the U.S. was machine tools and steel as well. So, so staying on the innovation technology, at what mm-hmm. point did, say, Taiwan, Korea, uh, other parts of Asia, or, or perhaps Europe, start to become part of this global technology computing picture? Well, I remember when I was at Intel, one of the things that in those days that manufacturing, taking the silicon, which is the big round flat thing that had all the chips on it, and assembling it into a package, that part of the process was very labor intensive. So Intel's Intel back then had a, an assembly and test factory that they opened in Penang, Malaysia, because it was very labor-intensive. I believe they, that was in the 70s already. It was quite early on. They were able to get a factory built there. They got a lot of local government support. And the labor-intensive part of it, because getting that kind of labor in the U.S. was expensive. So you could almost say that that was one of the first steps in terms of outsourcing a piece of the supply chain and the assembly to Asia, and that was really very, very important because that. So, in terms of the internationalization of technology, the initial impetus was sort of building out a more cost efficient supply chain for some of these uh, large US technology companies. Well, that was a captive supply chain. So, these were Intel employees, it was an Intel factory. It, it, much later, we ended up with sort of these independent companies that were for hire to to do manufacturing or assembly for other people. So th- that that happened down, down the road. But I'd say the Malaysia Penang captive one was one of the first, and I think some that's of the other probably ones. the early eighties that we're talking about or mid mm, late eighties. No, it was already in the seventies, and oh. I suspect it'd be worth checking that. I think some of the bigger electronics companies, maybe IBM and some of the others, also began. But Malaysia was one of the first. And another place, actually, back in those days, Hong Kong was more industrialized. And Singapore as well, and, perhaps. And Singapore, too, but right. Singapore yeah, didn't Hong have Kong. as much land. We had the four Asian tigers, right? That yeah. was Taiwan, Hong Kong, Korea, yes. and Singapore, right? right. The and little tigers. Yeah, so Taiwan also did, did quite a bit mm-hmm. of that. Um, and, but then Taiwan, something else developed, which was the creation of TSMC. And that goes back into what you said earlier about Asian students in the U.S., learning their skills and then coming back and bringing those skills with them. So TSMC, Morris Chang, who created, was it? And just for pe- people who don't know, what, what is TSMC and, and why is it important? So today TSMC is the world's biggest semiconductor manufacturer. They do contract manufacturing for chips, very, very advanced chips from everybody from Apple to NVIDIA to Qualcomm to AMD and on and on. There are very, very few companies today in the U.S. that do both the design and the manufacturing. And TSMC standing for Taiwan Semiconductor, Semiconductor Manufacturing, manufacturing Corporation. Corporation. right? Yep. And so uh, TSMC grew out of this, you could say, uh, uh, people who had been doing work in the United States and then coming back, in this case, to Taiwan, their home country, 
and building up uh, an important element in, within the, the technology value chain. And this particular is semiconductor um, manufacturing or yeah, design, well, well, testing. Taiwan is, one, as you mentioned, one of the tigers. You had you know, Taiwan and Korea. So, so Taiwan in particular had a lot of its younger generation when were able to go to the U.S. and study there because China in those days was, you know, there were there was no way to really leave it in the 70s because it was still quite closed. So a lot of Taiwanese, smart Taiwanese engineers ended up doing their postgraduate degrees in the U.S. And of course, there were no jobs for them back in Taiwan. So they ended up working for all the big electronics companies, whether it was IBM or AT&T, telecommunications, Nortel. And it was a similar thing also from Hong Kong as well. So the, the, the sort of wave of Asian students that ended up doing their PhDs and then getting very interesting advanced jobs. So not only were they did they get their degrees or PhDs in the U.S., they also had a, started developing careers in developing very advanced technologies for the for the technology giants back then. And Morris Chang was one of them, and he realized that uh, there was an opportunity to actually manufacture. In fact, Philips was one of the first investors in TSMC to design very simple consumer products. So, you know, the early TSMC that was not cutting edge like the Japanese or the U.S. were. But they were just content to develop very basic, very simple kinds of chips. But that was the beginning. It's actually very interesting, if anybody has a chance, is to listen to the interview with Morris Chang about how he created TSMC. It's really a fascinating read. So, Michael, you've done a great job of talking about the uh, regional aspects with the, within the United States in terms of the technology, the players, et cetera, and how part of that migrated to Asia indigenously in Japan, as well as part of the U.S. technology supply chain in Taiwan and Southeast Asia. One company we hear a lot about today is Arm, which is based in the U.K., so how do we have UK or perhaps other company, uh, European companies fitting into the global technology landscape? Well, it's an interesting question because the ARM, of course, people are writing about it a lot because uh, there's big discussion about NVIDIA who announced that they want to merge. Um, and we can I'll get into that maybe later if you'd like. But the thing is that that begins to give us an idea of how the technology industry globalized. And it globalized in several different ways. But before we get into how it globalized we should, you know it's there's i think it's worth looking at the why yep uh which maybe gets us into a slightly different vector which is sort of how the computer industry evolved we talked earlier about these mainframes and these large systems that were controlled by individual companies and then we talked about how intel invented the microprocessor which became eventually a building block for a whole new industry to emerge so if you look at the the history of the computer industry over the last 50 years, it's kind of, it's divided into different eras. There was the mainframe era, which we talk a lot about. Um, and then the next era was the PC. And these eras typically last 15, 20 years. You know, and it's not like a stick, it, it like one ends and one begins. They overlap, you know, it's, it's kind of like evolution. So the evolution of the industry are in these different eras. So we had mainframes, then we had the PC era, then we had, mobile, which is where we're in today, and maybe if we have time, we could talk about where I see the next one going. Within each one of these, you had different phases. So the mainframe morphed into mini computers, which are smaller versions, but still proprietary systems that were controlled by a single company. So we had IBM, the, the best known and the most successful mini computer company was Digital Equipment Corporation called DEC, which a lot of people never heard of because they don't exist anymore. They were bought by Compaq, a PC company, which also no longer exists. They were bought by HP. 
but we've all heard of Dell, for example. So, so what happened was that the reason that the PC industry emerged really goes back to, I was talking about the semiconductor company, Intel, which invented the microprocessor. And when I joined Intel, the microprocessor was being used primarily in IBM PCs. And the, just to, as a sidebar over here, in the UK, they also had the invention. So the early PCs, you had the, the PET, Commodore PET. You had the ARM, Acorn, not ARM, the Acorn uh, educational PC in the UK. And there were lots of different, and of course, how could I forget? The most famous one of all was the Apple II. Right, Apple One and then Apple Two. You know, Apple really created the concept of PC even before IBM came about. And then in '81, IBM announced the, the IBM PC, and that really was a seminal event in several regards. Is first of all, what made the PCs unique is each one of them used a microprocessor that already existed. So unlike the mainframe companies, where you had to develop everything, these PCs were put together with a microprocessor that was developed by another company. So although Intel invented the microprocessor, by the early 80s, you had National Semiconductor, you had Motorola, uh, you had Zilog, um, and you had a few other companies that were developing their own microprocessors. So there was a competition going on. And PCs, you could take a microprocessor, you could take solid-state memory and a few other logic things and build a fully functional computer that sits on your desktop they didn't do as much, but that was the birth of a new era when all these computers, whether it's Apple or the Pets or any of these others, and I remember having a lot of discussions about, well, which one's better? Is it the Pets or is it that? So, I mean, maybe to rephrase it in, or frame it in a way, the fact that we had a personal computer industry developing, which is a cons- almost a consumer product, gave enough scale such that companies no longer saw it in interest to develop proprietary components and things, but that each one would specialize in one piece and there would be people aggregating to have an end product to sell with big volume. Exactly. So as you had the horizontalization, so you know you had the microprocessor layer, which was the kind of the foundation. And then on top of that, you'd have operating systems made by, mostly by Microsoft, but then the emergence of other ones came about as well. And then on top of that, you had all the applications and then the distribution of it. It allowed a lot of innovation. You know, if you, you know, today the big word is everybody's into it, you know, innovations. But the speed of innovation when you separated things from being vertically integrated could move much quicker. Now, going back to what you're talking about, the globalization. So as this industry was able to do that, it lend itself to become more globalized because the different components could shift. So Intel began shifting manufacturing to other countries. So it's fabs in the 80s. They started building fabs in Israel. Later in the 90s, they did it in Ireland. Um, early 90s actually opened the big fab. One of the biggest fabs they had in those days was based in Ireland because they got all the tax breaks. So then it shifted from an environmental to economic and finance. In the parallel to all that happening, you also had the talent that was working in Silicon Valley going back. So you had you know, Morris Chang going back to Taiwan, setting up TSMC. The Koreans looked and said, okay, we like what the Japanese are doing. We want to build our industry as well. And a supply chain came about because different companies made different parts of the, of the stack. The companies began to outsource different parts of, instead of owning the factories, they'd find third-party companies that would actually provide it as a service instead of actually them owning the factory. And that whole mindset which of, of, of doing different steps of the value-add process that goes through when you're manufacturing process. So, moving it to areas that have lower cost of labor. That 
really accelerated in the 90s. And then, of course, that's when China changed and started doing contract you know, manufacturing the factory of the world. And, of course, one area that they latched onto after they, as they were moving up the value chain was electronics, which in turn also helped the Chinese technology industry develop very rapidly as well. ARM, because the UK did have some early situations, you know, the, the, the UK does had very good technology universities, still does. Cambridge and you know, ARM came out of that area. Michael, can you talk about, if it makes sense, the mobile era where mm-hmm. you had the internet driving uh, mobility and perhaps this fusion with computing and uh, communications? And, and is that the era that we're in now? Yeah, we're, we're, we're in the mobile era for sure. So the way I see the birth of mobile, of course, cell phones had been around much longer than that. And, you know, the companies like Nokia and Ericsson and Motorola were all very successful for many of us remember that taking place. And, you know, that, that was a revolution in of itself, but it was in a very different sector. It really, there was very little over. I mean, that was purely really about voice communication and that was yeah, it, right? That was it. And yeah, then, there you were many Europe other applications. And SMS messages, which sure. were part of the GSM standard. So there was a whole... There were different universes and very little overlap between the two. You yeah, the telecommunications industry, which is the land line one, you know, the the, the tele, telcos where you had a phone on your desk, and then the emergence of the cellular industry. There were different companies. There were these were independent industries, and then you had the computer industry, and the media industry was a separate industry as well. We talked earlier about television and radio. These, these were all separate industries that today we have, have blurred and merged because they've all become digital. So the differentiation has been a massive convergence, of course, which is, is why today we watch TV shows on our phone, for example, right? We mm-hmm. all do that. Or YouTube is a creation of the mobile, of the internet in the mobile era. So again, the genesis was, we're talking about different genesis of different things, was Apple's creation of the iPod, the music device. And that actually preceded the iPhone because Apple and Steve Jobs, who's still alive, had had the realization that it goes back to that usage pattern of people with the transistor radio that Sony created. And then the, remember the Walkman and, sure. and the portable CD players. Very much, yeah. So, you know, Steve knew that there was, that the population loved to listen to music on the go. And in those days we had Napster and we had the, the MP3 people finding that, you know, MP3 was a mathematical algorithm to compress sound waves mm. into a digital file that was small enough to fit into uh, your device. And, and the thing that, that was interesting about the iPod was the discovery of a very, very small hard drive. Because the original iPod didn't have mm-hmm. solid state memory, chip based memory. It, it, it had a hard drive. And um, the guys, this is the NAND, uh, NAND drive or no? No, this was actually a, a small hard drive with okay. a little spinning a disc. Okay. It wasn't RAM. It, it, was, was, a, it, it oh. was a physical, oh, 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 physical. It, it had a, actually a small, small spinning, spinning disc. disc. Okay. The, the, the flash memory back then was not oh, right. very high capacity. Okay. It was not like not NAND. It, it, it was not there yet. So the only way to get several megabytes of storage there was with a hard drive. So that miniature hard drive, when they saw it, and it was Tony Fadell, actually, who was the, 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 the manager of that group at Apple who saw it. He says, he at that point went to Intel and said, we need a processor for the iPod. Could you sell us one? And Intel looked at it and said, no, the margins in this, the cost of this is too low. And even though Intel had a world's best-selling MP3 player back then, they passed on it. And that planted the seeds, which later has now come back to haunt them. Because when Intel walked away on that, 
Apple went ahead and they found an alternative. They found a company called PA Micro, which was doing a microprocessor based around the ARM architecture. Because the difference between ARM and Intel is ARM doesn't design and manufacture its own chips. They just create a architecture, think of it as a software architecture, and they license it to other companies to build the chips. Fits perfectly well into this outsourcing model, if you think about it, because if you want to do a chip design like PA Micro did, part of the architecture, which is the key, which is the interface of the software, is ARM. Intel's is called x86. So that's their architecture, and Windows runs on x86. So you have the stack, the ecosystem around that, which is you design a chip for a particular use. You then use the ARM tools and the ARM libraries to create something that can run a lot of software that has already been created for ARM-based chips. And then you go to TSMC and, and they'll build it for you. So you don't need to invest in creating a whole new ecosystem for software. You don't need to invest in factories. You just do a creative and innovative design. And that's what the industry shifted towards. And Apple decided to go with that. They ended up buying PA Micro, which then resulted as the iPhone succeeded. Because the iPhone really was the natural progression of an, of, it was a blending of a cell phone with the iPod. If you looked at the early iPhone, it had a lot of similarities because it was, you know, so what they did is they said, you can use a phone to make a phone call. And Apple really created the smartphone. Uh, yeah, the, 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 there was the... Limited functionality with... Before that, right? Yeah, yeah you, you could tiny feature games, phones. feature phones, exactly. But, yeah. but uh, and, and yeah. there were a few, you know. But 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 Apple's true innovation there was a phone. That, first of all, the concept of swiping on your right. screen. The screen was, was the, the screen, the, yes. the you know the, the big screen pinch that you and could the, interact with. Yes. Yeah, the ability to to create mm-hmm. that that on the glass experience was yes. something as fundamental as a mouse. For That's example, right. And, you know, which Apple also uh, was was behind. So Apple understood user how to make things user-friendly. But what that meant is those little decisions that at the time didn't seem like to be that momentous were like the butterfly flapping the wings, Mm -hmm. creating a hurricane somewhere else, you know, that that, that butterfly effect theorem. And guess who got the manufacturing for all these chips? TSMC, not Intel. So whereas Intel was producing hundreds of millions of CPUs and chips a year because that was about the size of the PC industry between mobile, and that's a laptop mobile, not a handheld mobile, desktops and servers for, the, for, for data centers and, and more com- computer-intensive stuff, Apple was producing billions. You know, and, between, and then, of course, after Apple, we got Google, Android, phones which were licensed just like Microsoft did with Windows through Samsung and, and you know, hundreds of companies. So that ecosystem, that industry of smartphones grew up and developed into billions of devices a year. And that put TSMC on a track to manufacture, getting back to what I said earlier, things they were then accelerated their innovation pace of innovation to be able to improve their silicon at a rate that ultimately today they have overtaken Intel. They could produce more advanced chips than Intel can because they got the benefit of that volume curve. So let, let me ask you, um, and this feeds a little into both, I think, innovation and geography. If you could just touch on the standard setting aspect, because I'm curious, on the one hand, you have Apple developing their own software, proprietary, mm-hmm. and, and their own chips, and Google then develops its own operating system for, for cellular with, with Android. At the same time, there are standard setting bodies, and we've seen this with 5G that's being discussed. So 
if you could just quickly walk us through how standard setting bodies impact both innovation as well as the geographic landscape of, of technology. Well, there's two types of standards generally. There's sort of de facto standards, which are standards that are just there because there are enough units of that particular device that are interesting. So the perfect example is Wintel, right? Intel, Microsoft, that combination, when you've got a in total, even though they make hundreds of millions, billions of machines out there, if you're a software developer, you got to develop for the largest possible market. And it turned out to be that for many, many, many years, it was the Intel, Microsoft, and standard for, for, for Windows and generations of Windows. And that is a de facto standard. There's no committee out there that says, Understood. this. it's just right. simply by the size of the Sort industry. of organic. It happens through that, the yeah. process of just people uh, gravitating towards what's commercially going to be yeah. most viable. Exactly. But then you have standards that are set by committees. So things like USB or Bluetooth, things that we kind of know about. Those are set by, uh, so there's different or groups. Or MP3. Or MP3. MP3 also, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and some are done kind of by consortium where a group of companies get together and they all say, okay, we're going to agree on doing these. Bluetooth started off that way. And I was behind some at Intel when we created a few standards as well. Uh, but MP3 and, and also the video version of it, H.264 and mm-hmm. the MP4 and you know, all the stuff, the movie files and mm-hmm. wave files. And then, sure. of course, the, the things that ensure that you cannot pirate it. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the DRM, the data, data rights management and mm-hmm. the encryption take place that you, you prevent privacy. So that's why you can't take a music file off my what I bought from Apple and give it to you, same with mm-hmm. video files that are streaming. So those were all set by standards committee. And one of the big standards organizations is the IEEE, the Institute of Electronic Electrical Engineering, which is a U.S. institution. And the telecommunications space, it's under the United Nations. It's the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union in Geneva. And within that is a subcommittee called the 3GPP. Lots of acronyms, right? Alphabet soup here. But the 3GPP is the group that standardizes on communication standards. So you know, with, with GSM, which is the... So if you think back, let me take a sidestep over here. If you think back to the cell phones in the early days, we had CDMA in the U.S., and you bought a phone that you was, was in the States, and you took it with you to Japan or Europe. It didn't work. Right. You had to rent a phone when you got there. You know, we had the U.S., the Japanese, and the European yeah. mm-hmm. standards. Now, Europe standardized because ITU 3GPPs was a European institution, and it was a big move for the States to move off their proprietary CDMA standard. Mm-hmm. And Verizon was one of the last to move off because mm-hmm. remember when you couldn't take a Verizon phone anywhere, but they had a better network. But finally, the U.S. went along with it and then China went along. And for the last probably close to 20 years, we had a global standard for telecommunications. So this is a good segue. I mean, I think perhaps we haven't fully described the current era we're in, but maybe in the context of where we're heading, we'll understand where we are today because Obviously, in the news, we're reading a lot about um, uh, certain countries maybe um, limiting uh, Huawei, in particular, access to their telecommunications network. I mean, we've known for a long time that a number of technologies have been limited within China, right? And mm-hmm. websites and uh, Facebook and whatnot. And we're also reading about um, different regions wanting perhaps to develop their own um, uh, I don't know, rules or perhaps technology or homegrown champions in in this space. And we're also reading about a lot of M&A activity going on. So 
give us an idea like where we're, where we're, where do you see technology headed given the, the arc that we just, that we've been following on geography as well as innovation? Well, the arc now is kind of um, less, up until now, the sort of arc that, that you describe has been fairly predictable. You, know, you had Intel driving innovation in a certain way. You had Apple and Google and it was, things were moving along in a very kind of nice, predictable, incremental manner. And then there were, I would say, two really significant shocks that happened, exogenous shocks that happened to the system. Number one was as a result of TSMC getting the volume from Apple, result, and then, of course, because of the ARM connection, because it allowed people to create various designs around those two pieces, you saw the the sort of the eras we talked about before mainframes, PCs, and then the third era mm-hmm. is the mobile. The defining characteristics of the mobile era, so w- w- just the defining characteristics of the PC era was Wintel, was Intel and Microsoft, and then Apple. Even though we love Macs, our Macs, it was never a very big market share leader. I mean, all the volume was happening around Intel and, and Microsoft, and Intel built its own chips. So there were manufacturers, integrated design and manufacturing. The Defining characteristics of the mobile era was a further horizontalization of manufacturing and architecture, which was ARM, and then design above it. So what Intel did is it integrated design split into three sublayers within that. And that had a tremendous effect because TSMC now on its process technology has moved way far ahead of Intel by several, you know, if it was a race, they've lapped Intel three or four times. ARM has, is a much more open standard because ARM is a standard, even though it's not defined by a committee, but ARM is effectively standard because the ecosystem that has been built around this is tremendous in terms of lots of companies innovating around that core thing. So you look at what's been taking place and it's opening up in a lot of ways and companies that are building designing chips that are being manufactured by TSMC, if you see AMD, for example, right now, their chips are running faster than Intel's. Apple has decided that its next Mac, which by the time this podcast goes live, will have been announced and will be shipping, which would be based on Apple's own design using ARM architecture, but they'll be designing the chips that TSMC will be manufacturing in a process that's two generations or three generations ahead of Intel. That just accelerates it even further. So you've got clearly that taking place. Intel's kind of fallen behind. And then other external shock is the whole U.S.-China situation where the U.S. government has been trying, certainly under Trump, again, by the time this goes live, maybe we're going to have a new president, but you know, that, whether that changes it or not, who knows. But the point is that it's creating a bifurcation between what's going on in the rest of the world, in the U.S. and in China. And China, interesting enough, has already, because of its relative isolation behind a firewall, and other reasons, is developed in several areas a separate direction. Mm-hmm. Payments, for example, is mm-hmm. a big one, right? Alipay and, you know, the Ant IPO, mm-hmm. that, that there's been all the news recently. The, you know, the rest of the world is Visa and MasterCard payment rails, but China is very much around Alipay and WeChat Pay. So you've already seen that. China's also got its own satellite navigation and GPS systems, and they're b- developing their own blockchain services network. So there's already a number of areas that are evolving just like the early days where Japan kind of was its own indigenous mm-hmm. tech sector, China is, has developed its own indigenous sector. But where they've been still importing technology has been microprocessors from Intel, ARM, building around ARM, and a lot of the same global standards. And in particular, telecommunications have been using the same ITU standards with 5G. 
But China is also contributing a lot to 5G and beyond. I believe that there's a high likelihood that it will diverge even further, maybe even communication standards and other things, because if ARM is successfully acquired by NVIDIA and is in the, and essentially under control of the U.S., China's not talking about RISC-V, which is another architecture similar to ARM, not as developed, and the ecosystems and all these companies are not there. But they're seriously looking at it because they're saying, well, what if the U.S. government decides to hold back our access to ARM? It's too strategically important to us. So RISC-V is an open source architecture, which does not have that same level of, nobody really controls it as such. So if you really extrapolated further down the road, what we have two internets, uh, yeah, China internet and, and internet for the rest of the world, and then some sort of, I guess, firewalls between them? Or, well, we're, or kind of, we're kind of going there. I mean, if you look at cloud in China, it's dominated by Ali Cloud and Tencent Cloud and Ping'an Cloud. Those are the three big cloud providers. Ali's probably furthest ahead, followed by Tencent and then Ping'an. If you look at the West, it's Amazon with AWS, it's Google and Microsoft with Azure, right? And they're very different. If you're a developer, say you're a bank or you're a big retail, global retailer, you have to think very differently. You have to write effectively to two cloud infrastructures, mm-hmm. whether you're in China or outside of China. Even other things like a website. If, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in the U.S. and you're an e-commerce provider or a news, uh, you, you, you develop a website, which includes a mobile website that might even ultimately end up in an app on your phone. If you're in China, it doesn't work that way. You need to have a 10 cent account you know so that people in china don't go to the website the, the, the world wide web they go into an app and most of it are these accounts inside one of these official accounts in wechat okay you know but, that's the way they interact so you have to have a website for the west right and you have to have a, a, a it's WeChat almost like official an int- account. internet it, it's uh it's it's really fascinating so thinking of let's say blockchain or other things where people naturally would want to connect information globally. Will that be impaired by this phenomenon we're talking about? Or will there be some a global standard body that somehow will be able to allow for the protections that certain countries are, you know, want to have for themselves to connect? Or some other sort of intermediary that could kind of help take two different, very different systems and architectures, and then have a, a wall in between where they can kind of meet and transact and share and then a protective wall that, that you can pass through, if that makes sense. Well, you do have the global standards with ITU, as I mentioned already, but I don't think it's going to be that simple. No. I, I think we're going to start seeing, you know, these parallel universes emerge, which we, we're beginning to see. And now, of course, India with the GEO and, you know, out of Alliance has also talked about creating one. And in Europe also, there's a bit of a pushback against Google and Facebook. Uh, and, you know, the, there's the, you know, so I, I'm, so how do you see that in terms of how people or companies like use the, like a global bank or a person using internet service or a pay, a pay you know, a, a fintech, if you go project forward a few years, how, how do you see that happening for those people that are trying to do that, their business or that thing across borders? Well, if you're a company, it's just gotten, it's about to get much more complicated and a lot more expensive as well, because you have to think about these two things. I mean, here in Hong Kong, we're kind of at the intersection of these things. So, you know, I've talked to a number of multinationals over here that have businesses in China and businesses here, and they're going, we have to develop two systems. We've got to do something that runs on, on, on the China cloud, and we've got to do something that runs on AWS, for example. And they're different. 
same thing with the with the phones as if that's not complicated enough as i said before we had these eras of computing mainframe pc laptop and mobile we're about to enter the next era and the next era is around 5g and it's around this concept of edge computing. So a lot of the stuff, you know, when you download a song, it comes out of a data center in your phone and the data center stores the number. There's a third layer that's about to be emerged because part of the 5G standard is this concept of an edge. And the, the edge means that today, you're, um, the base station that your cell phone connects to on radio is a dumb base station. It's just a communication switch. You connect it from there, you go on the internet and it goes... Next generation base stations are going to have computer power in the base station that will do things like its own AI, its own computational power, which means a whole new architecture for software has to be developed. And the chips that go into that will need to be more powerful because the base station will no longer just be a, you know, a gateway to just switch your data from here to there. It will actually do computational power. And that computational capabilities to say AI would be important because we'll be able to start getting smarter devices like wearables that are capable of doing much more because they leverage a power on the edge. So who controls that new architecture? So the reason that ARM and NVIDIA are pushing so hard to merge is because they're trying to prepare for the edge and to try to build the ecosystem that will, that will be how the edge will be done. And the reason that's so important in the companies that control their specific ecosystem make most of the profits. Uh, there's a lot of research that's been done on that. So, for example, Intel and Microsoft made 80% of the profits in the entire PC industry. Everybody else got crumbs. Apple still, even though they don't have the biggest market share versus Samsung and the other players, 80% of the profits in the mobile era are still Apple's because they control that ecosystem. So the next ecosystem that's about to start developing, it's up for grabs. And, you know, the ARM... And NVIDIA, they're kind of like, they see the prize and they like want to grab it because Intel, as I said earlier, has fallen behind. So there's a whole new emergence of new things. So you bring all this political and regulatory and all these other things that we've talked about and then combine it with the fact that the industry is about to go through another massive transformation in the next 10 years, maybe sooner. A, the positive side of it is it will create a lot of opportunity for new innovation and new companies to emerge. Maybe this would be the thing that unseats Google and Apple. And it also creates a lot of confusion. But usually out of confusion, when you get a new era, you also see interesting new innovations happening. Well, uh, Michael, it's been really fascinating conversation. We could go on for hours. And obviously, there's so many threads that you could, could actually focus on and really flesh out. And so I know it wasn't easy, but I think we've uh, given people a, a, a really good sort of overview of, of the key themes and topics within the, the arcs that we discussed of, of geography and innovation within technology. Hopefully we've given people some food for thought and uh, <laughs> I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to uh, talk about all these seemingly random ideas, <laughs> but hopefully there's, there, there's a logic among all this. It's been a nice way to spend a weekend morning. So I really appreciate your uh, sharing your insights uh, with My us. My pleasure. Did you want to, um, just for our podcast audience, did you want to share, I don't know, either um, a social media handle or a website or any other thing where people, if they wanted to, to follow you, any, any, anything there? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, Michael Brook is my handle. Uh, my website. It's B-R-U-C-K. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And my website is spark, S-P-A-R-Q dot C-C. So I post some of the articles that are, I've written some articles about some of these subjects and will continue to do so. 
And uh, I should add that and we're- And you can follow me on LinkedIn too. <laughs> easy to find. I should add that we are uh, doing this podcast from the Spark uh, headquarters and they have a very beautiful office. Uh, so uh, uh, something's better experience in person than virtually. Well, um, thanks again. And I look forward to having you on the podcast another time. Thanks, Jesse. Pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>